Hi, everyone. This is uh, the Longevity Biotech Show with uh, Nathan Chang and Robert Zimmern. Uh, today, we have the great privilege of having Matt Scholes, uh, the co-founder of Oishin Biotechnologies, here with us. Uh, Oishin Biotechnologies is a gene therapy company that is targeting uh, senescent cells. So um, today, we're just going to talk about uh, Matt's um, backstory, how he got into longevity, days of the company, how he built it out, and uh, maybe this can help serve as um, just a reference or a template for other people who are thinking about getting into longevity, maybe starting their own company. So um, without further ado, let's just start off. Uh, oh, actually, housekeeping. Uh, this is being recorded. So later on, uh, when we open up for questions, so after maybe 30 minutes, uh, just FYI, um, if you come up to ask a question, that means you're consenting to us uh, uh, allowing us to use your voice in the recording, the podcast, and uh, also your uh, profile photo uh, when we upload the uh, recording to YouTube. Okay, so um, let's just start with some quick introductions. I'll go first, and then Robert, and then Matt. So um, myself, I'm Nathan. I'm the uh, the founder of uh, Longevity Market Cap and the uh, editor of the Longevity Market Cap newsletter. Uh, it's a once a week sort of roundup of things that are going on in the longevity biotech industry. Uh, I'm also the founder of Longevity List, which is a website where you can find jobs, uh, companies, and investors in longevity biotech. Um, yeah, so Robert, would you like to introduce yourself? Thanks, Nathan. Yeah, so I'm uh, Robert Zimmon. I am a uh, researcher currently affiliated with the Cohen Lab uh, based outside of Montreal in Quebec, Canada. Um, I have about 10 years of experience in bioinformatics and research software engineering and have been getting more involved in the longevity biotech space in the last year or so. Matt? I'm uh, Matt Schultz, I'm the, the CEO of Oshin Biotechnologies, uh, and it's an oncology-focused spin-out, Oncosenex. And I guess we'll, I'll save the rest for probably as we go through this. <laughs> Let me do the bio in advance. <laughs> okay, great. Sounds good. Um, so I guess we'll start off by focusing on the present. And then after we cover that, so that we have some context about Oishin Biotechnologies, then maybe we'll sort of rewind and, and start from your beginning. Um, so uh, yeah, so what is Oishin Biotechnologies? So we're a company focused on basically treating uh, diseases of aging with the, the goal of extending health span and eventually lifespan. And we kind of got our start as a, a new class of senolytic that could basically kill cells based on what they were thinking, as we like to say, but uh, based on their transcriptional activity. So instead of like using a, a poison to like a chemotherapy to kill these things or trying to find an antibody against them, we can effectively upload a, a program into your veins that says, you know, if you're senescent, kill yourself. And, uh, but we're really looking at senescence as kind of the, the tip of the spear. And our goal is to go after a lot of other things. And so we have this platform that allows us to, you know, produce proteins kind of arbitrarily in, uh, in different cells in the body or, or just all over the place. And so we're kind of setting out at a, at a senolytic because, you know, it, it's what we can address today. I think the people have kind of accepted it as a viable target and believe there's benefits in doing it. And we can tie it to diseases the FDA uh, views as, as druggable targets and, uh, and then go from there. Great, yeah. So 
Uh, your technology right now, the, um, the gene therapy targeting senescence, can you just uh, give us a little bit of background on like what the target is specifically and, um, and how you're delivering this uh, gene therapy to these senescent cells? Yeah, so the, the first target we had selected was P16. And uh, we, we did that largely because of, you know, these studies out of the, the Mayo Clinic where they showed, you know, the benefits of ablating P16 positive senescent cells. As, uh, as the field grows, though, I'd say maybe take a step back. I don't think uh, the field has yet to characterize every population of senescent cells in humans. I think there are kinds of senescent cells we don't yet understand, some of which we are, we don't even know exist. But uh, I'd say P16 is probably the the most validated, uh, broadest, and most specific at the, at the same time um, as a marker for senescence that you can actually get at. And the uh, so we set out to simply build a clinically viable version of what was done in the Mayo Clinic studies. And for those who aren't familiar with it, the the Mayo Clinic and the Buck basically built a, some transgenic mice that allowed you to kill P16 positive cells with an otherwise innocuous drug. And they use this to kill those cells uh, intermittently, uh, in some cases starting after weaning and in some cases in more middle age. And they showed this like really compelling data like it, that if you started at a relatively young age in particular, most of the pathologies of age didn't really manifest themselves at all. They were uh, healthy, they're less likely to get cancer, and they lived longer and then died abruptly, basically. And uh, the, the real problem with that, I suppose, like a lot of academic studies, is that it's not even remotely translatable. Like, in order to do this, you have to go back in time and modify your own embryo, the, the GMO mouse. And so we set out to do that in a way that would be clinically viable, and, but still using the same kind of uh, thesis. So if you consider, like, say, the desitinib and quercetin uh, treatments, these things uh, are, you know, one's a chemotherapy, the other's a flavonoid, like they're they're killing a cell effectively based on, you know, metabolic attributes. And the uh, and it, it definitely skews harder to P53 senescent cells than P16. And so we wanted the, the straight P16 one initially, and that's what we built and what we generated a lot of our data with. But the, the beauty of this approach is that you can target multiple pathways at the same time. It, you can basically put Boolean logic into DNA. So I'd say the, the most effective version we've got actually combines P16 and P53 targeting. And so we get complete knockdown of both in a, in a construct that you can deliver across the body without having off-target effects. And so the, as, as we go forward, I think, you know, kind of the, the holy grail in the field is to build a true pan-senescence promoter, something that works in, in all the different types of senescent cells and, and not the bad. And I think that to really to do that in practice will require you know, combinations of promoters and repressors or promoters and interfering RNA, something to, to focus it a little bit better. But that's, that's where we're going with it now. Right, right. So, so if I understand correctly, uh, you have this gene therapy that uh, gets activated uh, from these promoters of, you know, uh, markers of um, senescence, and then it sort of induces like an apoptosis and the cell just commits suicide or something like that. That's right. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, I, I don't know uh, how technical the audience is, but uh, <laughs> you, know, you have a, so, so feel free to ask questions, but I, I like to say I'm fluent in English and gibberish, so I can be pushed in either direction pretty, pretty easily <laughs> if I go too far one way. But uh, 
you know, you have a, a promoter that can drive pretty much any gene you want. In this case, P16. And so P16 is a, a tumor suppressor is what its kind of mission in life is normally. Um, but uh, it's also activated in senescence. And I mean, senescence can be thought of as a kind of a last ditch attempt to avoid cancer as well, because basically when a cell becomes senescent, it's not able to divide anymore, with a, at least not unless you mutate it. And, uh, and so this thing goes active and, uh, and we know it's on in the majority of these senescent cells. So what we did was we put a suicide gene, uh, an inducible version of caspase nine uh, under that promoter. So if P16 goes up, uh, suicide gene gets made, cell gets killed. If P16 is not high, uh, nothing happens and the cell goes about its business. Okay, awesome. And uh, how, how do you deliver this, uh, uh, this gene? Oh, that, that's a great question. So, uh, I mean, uh, I guess if you think about gene therapy, like people have wanted to mess with DNA ever since they knew what DNA was. But the Achilles heel of, of this field really has been delivery. Like, how do you get your genetic payload into cells across the body? And, you know, recognizing that your body has like a vested interest in not allowing this to happen. I mean, it it basically thinks virus when it thinks foreign DNA. And so your, your body has all these defenses that would, uh, you know, if you just put DNA into the blood, it will be enzymatically degraded. It doesn't enter cells efficiently. And if you use a virus, you have even worse problems in that respect. But uh, in it, it protects it in the blood, but now your body knows it's a virus. So what we use is something called a proteolipid vehicle. And this is a, a subset of lipid nanoparticle. So think of like microscopic fat bubbles. You know, they're like 80 nanometers across, really, really small little fat bubbles with DNA on the inside. And if you've been following that field, uh, you've probably seen that they, they made a bit of a Faustian bargain of sorts. And if you take a neutrally charged lipid, it's well tolerated. It doesn't hurt anyone if you inject even large amounts of it. But, uh, but it also isn't very good at getting into cells. They don't work very well. And so if you look at like the formulations used by companies like Moderna, uh, these uh, are charged lipids and, uh, or conditionally charged lipids. And basically they have a, a positive or negative charge or one that can be induced. And, and that allows them to get into cells relatively efficiently, but it also leads to them being wildly toxic. And so if you, you inject these things IV, you can only put tiny amounts in before you destroy the liver basically. And a good example of this is the COVID vaccine, uh, you know, Pfizer, Moderna, like they're administering millions of a gram of these things to full grown men. And so that's, it's a tiny amount and you still will get some toxicity from it. And so they couldn't go any higher in the vaccine without causing toxicity. It was too bad for it to progress. So, I mean, they've been working on these things for a long time. And so the, the proteolipid vehicle is neutral in the, the one we use. So it doesn't have any of those issues. But to get into the cell, we have a, a tiny little viral protein on the surface, a fusogenic peptide. And it is quite minuscule. Like the part that sticks out is only 12 amino acids long. So it's like a thousand times smaller than say like the spike on influenza or something that would do something similar. And, uh, and that uh, little peptide is able to mix the lipids of the particle with the lipids of a cell membrane. And so it basically goes right through the membrane and delivers the payload to the cytoplasm. And it's important because it doesn't need to be endocytosed. It doesn't rely on, on any kind of uptake from the cell. It just indiscriminately fuses with everything. And so philosophically, this is actually a, a pretty radical departure. Like what we've opted to do is take targeting out of the realm of chemistry and bring it into the realm of information. So we have an utterly indiscriminate delivery system with a highly targeted payload. Right. So the idea is, I guess, to just get the... Um 
the delivery vehicle into all cells and then let the uh let the uh, the gene do the targeting that's exactly right i mean to him every cell in the body is you know probably not practical but we we can hit lots of them i mean we the majority of them probably it's a there's nothing else that comes even close to the penetration we can get i mean if you look at organs that take a lot of it like we hit pretty much every cell in the tissue and so there's it doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier notably um you can administer it into the cns and it will function just fine there but uh, it doesn't cross really on its own so you don't hit like every cell in the whole body but uh we hit an awful lot of them okay that's really cool um so where are you guys right now in development so the uh the most Okay, so on the delivery side, the most advanced thing is actually a COVID vaccine, which is in clinic already. On uh, on our side, the cancer program is a little more advanced than the aging program, and uh, that's already had its first regulatory meetings. It basically, just has GLP talks ahead of it. For uh, the aging front, and uh, so there, there's this overlap between aging and cancer. You can you can almost use the two interchangeably. Like we we definitely optimize. Uh, for, for both, but there is a lot of overlap. Like it's amazing how many cancers you could kill with something that targets these genes. And uh, so on the, the Senolytic side though, our first target is kidney disease. And we're looking at it both in the ability to prevent the transition from a, an acute kidney injury into chronic kidney disease and the ability to like arrest progression of the chronic kidney disease. And so that, Basically, it, senescent cells are known to play a role in the pathogenesis of chronic kidney disease. They, they kind of drive this vicious cycle of inflammation, fibrosis, more senescence, and uh, that keeps going until you end up in end-stage renal failure. So uh, if we can kill off those senescent cells, the idea is that the, the kidney can recover. Okay, great. And do you have like a, a timeline for when you think you might be able to, I don't know, maybe get to the clinic? Well, you guys doing IMD a lot of this... Or? And yeah, I mean, I'd say we're we're gated more on funding than we are on science. And so the, we're actually uh, just uh, wrapped up uh, a seed round and that will take care of the rest of our preclinical studies. Then we have the regulatory meeting for that and we'll go into the clinic. I, I think we're probably around 18 months away, but uh, assuming things go relatively smoothly <laughs> in, in biotech, uh, at least as smoothly as biotech goes. Awesome. Well, that's that's really exciting. Um, okay, great. So now that we have like a, a bit of context about uh, Oishin Biotechnologies and the approach, maybe we can rewind to sort of the earlier days of the company so that we can give people an idea of uh, sort of what it takes to do something like this. So um, maybe you can start by just telling me uh, how did you start the company? Like, like how did it actually form? Yeah, so uh, I guess if we go back a little further, my, my background is in computer science and physics, uh, not bio. And so that the perspective, I suppose, taking going into this is a little unconventional. And the, the North Star for me really was that the essence of life is information. And if you can manipulate the information in the body, you can do anything. And for pretty much all of human history, we approach medicine from the perspective of like plants and prayers, you know, small molecule drugs and, and ritual. And uh, the ability to manipulate the code of life really opens up whole new doors. And so that that's the kind of perspective that led me to here. But uh, the genesis of, of Ocean actually was quite interesting. It, it came kind of out of a, a company I was doing before, so Immusoft, which is my first uh, foray into biotech. And 
it, uh, we are building, you know, what amounted to an app store for the human body. So producing, you know, long-lived plasma cells that secreted therapeutic proteins and the ability to just upload new programs to your body to, to make new things you wanted. And one of the long-standing goals I had for the platform was to basically try to recreate the biochemical environment of youth as you aged. And I mean, if you think about it, if you took your blood, you know, once a year from birth until death, and, and you looked at what was inside and floating around, it, it wouldn't be the same. I mean, obvious things change, like say uh, testosterone or estrogen, but countless other things change too. You get accumulation of bad things, uh, you know, reduction of some good. And uh, you can never take enough drugs to put it back the way it should be. But if you can program your body to make things, you can have them secreting these things 24 seven or secreting things that clean up the mess 24 seven. So that's that kind of this longstanding goal. And I was giving uh, a talk about this at a health extension salon put on by uh, Joe Lacan in the Bay Area. And, uh, and I spoke right before uh, Judy Campisi spoke. And she was actually presenting some of this early data from the collaboration between the Buck and the Mayo Clinic. And at the time, I, I wasn't really following the space. Like, I, I didn't know much about senescent cells or anything like that. And uh, as watching this data and, uh, and kind of listening to people muse about how to you know, translate this. And I looked at this guy across the table. I was like, that's fascinating, but I do it entirely different. And uh, this, uh, this guy is Gary Hudson, who ended up being a co-founder. And at the bar afterwards, he is, said, how would you do it? And I kind of spit out this idea of trying to kill off these cells with a, a genetic program. And he thought this was a great idea. And he's basically, we, we should start a company. We got to do it. And I just uh, closed my Series A for Ibisoft. And like my investors will, you know, castrate me if I start another company and so uh, I don't know what I can do about it and he's like well I tell you what if you basically write it up I'll put in the first money and I'll, I'll run it until uh, you can take over uh, eventually you know you'll exit Ubisoft and then yeah I can, I can raise more money but it, it just has to happen and so I thought this is a, a pretty compelling uh, pitch <laughs> and we set to work building basically a plan and we we built it to basically fail fast like to, I, I we had really brutal stage gates on it. I, I wanted it to, if, if it was successful, it had to be really successful, really compelling. Cause I, I didn't want this thing like, you know, wasting time basically. And uh, so we, we set out these stage gates and we uh, licensed in the technology to do it. And, and the first data was basically better than we'd expected. And so it, it got everyone really excited and that's kind of how it, it went going. He's able to bring in more money. And it was a, you know, a couple of years later that I, I finally transitioned into being the CEO. Okay, awesome. Yeah, uh, I actually want to yeah maybe dig deeper on this this um, these gates that you're talking about, like the uh, risking process. So so when you started the company, what what were those sort of milestones that you wanted to hit? Well, I mean the the big one was really can we kill senescent cells in a living organism with this treatment? And uh, so there's I mean little ones about of course putting the whole thing together and making sure we could you know, even assemble nanoparticles that did this correctly. Um, but, uh, but then, yeah, it really came down to, can we take a mouse, um, induce senescence, and in this case, so we give it, like, back then we didn't have enough money to naturally age mice. So we give them basically high doses of chemotherapy and radiate them and stuff. And, uh, and you can see senescence uh, accumulate if you're using, a, like, a luciferous mouse for this or you stain for it after the fact. And so we found that we could induce the senescence and, uh, and then give it a, makes a single treatment uh, with this nanoparticle and, and knock it down again. And so that, that was really the primary 
investigate like could could you actually use this in a living organism and i said normally like one could easily put together you know nih grants to explore the periphery of this for years before getting to the point <laughs> of saying i want to see if it works uh it doesn't you know kill the poor mouse and uh, we we pretty much went to that straight away because i thought if there if we couldn't you know hit those cells in a living organism out of the gate and broadly enough with like a practical dose, you know, this is going to be a, an even steeper uphill battle than it would normally be. <laughs> and so that, that was our first shot. Okay, great. Yeah. And that is an interesting point about not being able to avoid the, the naturally aged mass because, yeah, that's something that we've talked about with other people, uh, other co-founders uh, on this show. Um, maybe, you can, I don't know if you can tell us, but uh, just like from a practical standpoint, starting a company and getting the first data, uh, how much money do you, would like a, someone like a founder today need to put in to, to get something like that, like the data that you were, you were getting to first de-risk the, the company? <laughs> That's a great question. It, it depends far more on how creative you are than I think anything else. Um, I mean, the vanilla answer is probably a few million bucks, but uh, but you can do it for way, way less. And so one, you know, one thing I'd noticed in kind of my first journey into biotech was that there's a, a great deal of latent capacity in academia. Um, academic labs have interesting, you know, cycles and they, you know, get a grant, get some data, publish, get a new grant. And uh and frequently, like just due to how long the grant cycles take, they'll have actually done the data uh, or done done the research before they even get their grant. And uh, and then they do things like approach the end of the grant. And if they still have money left over, they buy as much equipment and goodies as they can, you know, to because they don't want to like not use all the money. And so they they end up with some interesting kind of artifacts of this. Um, so that there's often more more equipment, more resources sitting in an academic lab than uh, than you might expect. And so there, it's kind of, I guess, disproportionately allocated. So there's definitely some uh, you know, starving young scientists. But uh, but if you can combine this with uh, something uh, new and attractive technically and often get really fruitful academic collaborations. Like I've, I've made some, some really interesting deals with academic groups where I basically, like, I have this cool technology. If, if you kind of test it in uh, your lab with your stuff, then you can publish on it and... Uh, um, and I, I get to just use the data. So I, my, my general philosophy is uh, they can have the glory. I, I just need the IP. So because we're you know, trying to commercialize this, not get a paper published. And so you could, I mean, depending on what you are actually testing, you do things really cheap on a shoestring. I mean, I, it, <laughs> I had like uh, on my first company, like the first like license was a few grand. I got like the the lab that made it or who I licensed it from to like build me the prototype. So, and then I made another deal with a, a different lab so that uh, they could use it in some of their research. Uh, if I could get like visiting scientist status there and test it uh, on, on the cells we wanted to. So you can be very creative. And, and I think you really need to be, unless you are just one of the, the lucky ones who, you know, come out of a prominent lab and have a big VC that wants to fund it. But e even if you have that as an option, I mean, there's certainly downsides to it. Like, the VC will own everything from the beginning and, uh, and you might not have the, the freedom you want to, to go in the directions you want with it. Right. So, so doing this sort of like shoestring approach, uh, um, what kind of order of magnitude do you think it would cost? To, well, like uh, to it, it depends a, a great deal on the kind of work you need to do. Like in vitro work, 
could be done almost for free, really, um, because it, if the reagents aren't particularly expensive, it, you know, it's a few hours on some machines, you know, uh, a little bit of tissue culture time, maybe, and and you're good. If, if you need to do in vivo studies, like that will definitely complicate things because you have to have a, a vivarium that's able to, you know, do that kind of work, and they can be harder to to do for cheap or free. But uh, I mean, I, I had a, a really fascinating project I did years ago, and I, it was during the Ebola outbreak. And I'd been working on this tool to, to basically do gene therapy in my garage, uh, open source in vivo electroprater. And uh, I thought this had the potential to bring expensive biologics into the developing world where you wouldn't have a cold supply chain and wouldn't have you know, necessarily all, all the infrastructure you need to otherwise use them. And we end up doing, it was a primate study. So what would have been a very expensive study um, at the university. And basically all we ended up really paying for was the DNA we put in. And uh, which is actually a lot of DNA. It, it turned our lab into like Breaking Bad for you know, a week as we had like every every container we could find was full of E. coli making uh, DNA. But uh, basically these animals were coming off protocol for something else. And so they're able to do, you know, amount of protocol amendment to test it on this. And it basically ran through on the same budget and everything and under the same auspices. So, I mean, normally to do a primate study is like, you know, it costs you a hundred grand or something probably. And, uh, to, or, or more depending on what you want to do with them. And in this case, it was like a few thousand dollars. We went from, uh, an idea to actual data in, in primates, which is pretty amazing. And so you, you can, I said, it's really limited mostly by your own creativity. <laughs> you can, if you have a motivated academic partner, you can accomplish quite a bit. And I, I actually think that in some respects, this is better than just having uh, a ton of money out of the get-go because you're kind of forced to get these guys to buy off on it. Like someone who's running a lab with these resources is not going to like allocate time, you know, money reagents to doing it if they don't think it's you know interesting and has promise um because you know what what's in it for them i guess um but in the process of getting these people to buy off on it you you might also you know be working with them on the experimental designs and whatnot and, and realize maybe shortcomings you had in the initial one or some other things you should look at um you know the the ad hoc interactions whereas if you just had a cro do it um you know you write the check and they do it and <laughs> for better or worse the <laughs> data comes out the other end so the the process of, of building it organically, actually, I think is is attractive. I, even now having, you know, a lot more resources than I did before, we still do these kinds of collaborations and uh, basically find some people who are really bright and motivated in academia and say, hey, we'll, we'll give you a tool that nobody else has and, uh, and we'll run these experiments and, <laughs> and, and see what happens. And it, even right now, like we're, we're doing some collaborations that are, are pretty cool. <laughs> like we're, we're seeing data that I, I don't think anyone really expected it. It's exciting. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I really like that approach. And, it, you know, it makes sense from a practical standpoint and, and also a scientific standpoint. So very cool. Um, maybe I can just ask one quick question before I hand it over to Robert. Um, so for uh, founders who are starting off today, uh, who want to do something in longevity, um, what sort of words of advice do you have for them? Like do's and maybe some do nots? Well, you know, it's interesting about the space is it's it is still quite young. And I mean, when, so when I first uh, got into bio, I was trying to do something no one else was trying to do. And uh, and I thought that was both a, a blessing and a curse, like in that, like my relative lack of experience didn't count against me as much as it might otherwise, because no one had done it anyway. And so I, it was 
definitely uh, spend more time trying to figure out what didn't work previously than uh, than trying to even figure out what I wanted to do. And I think in some respects, that's it's probably a good piece of advice. Like if you're hatching up something, um, it is definitely good to get as much feedback on like why it won't work as possible. And ideally you find someone who tried it and failed so you can you know, understand why. And this is something that it's a little counterintuitive, but I think was very helpful early on is I, I would talk about what I wanted to do to everybody who would listen. And, uh, and the feedback was generally like, you're crazy. That won't work. You know, you don't even have a business being in this field in the first place. And, uh, but that kind of feedback really allowed me to, to basically hone the strategy, uh, you know, get rid of some things that would have probably been obvious problems that weren't on my radar before. And uh, in fact, every time someone would say something like that, I would kind of pin them down and be like, okay, what's the number one reason this won't work or is a bad idea? And, and I would go dig into that reason in particular. I'd find experts in that area. I would call them up and say, hey, I want to, this is what I want to do, but I think this is a problem. Can you help me solve the problem? And, uh, and tell eventually there were no more glaring reasons. And then we actually got funded and that's how we launched. But I think that if you're looking at uh, starting a company in this field, like you have to kind of look at the landscape of what's going on now, what's been done and, and decide kind of where you want to fit into this. And like my general attitude is I like the ambitious projects. Like in, in my mind, you know, it, even starting something simple, like a falafel stand is hard. Like any business is hard. It's going to take your, your time, your money, your youth. The, uh, so do something that you're going to be really happy with when you trade all those things for it <laughs> that has a real upside and going after, you know, aging as a whole, uh, or gene therapy and biotechnology, these are, you know, high risk, high reward fields. And so I think really you've got to know what it is you want to master and, and what the, the outcome is, um, kind of before you get into it. And my, I guess, general philosophy with these things is to be, the undisputed world expert in what we were doing and, and effectively nothing else uh, to, to basically rely on, on others like, you know, who are really good at those things to do those things and, and focus on our, our core technology, why it was different, why, why people need to do this, this exact thing and not something else. Awesome. Yeah. That's really good advice. Um, I, I think that's also interesting. The, the point about, you know, just asking everybody like, why I want this, you know, ideal work. I think uh, in biotech, a lot of people are very secretive about what they're up to. So they're, they're, they probably don't want to, you know, share these, their, their approach with other people. But I guess the quickest way to de-risk is to, yeah, ask experts. Um, what well, is funny, yeah, like a lot so, uh, of, uh, oh. you know, a lot of, like, I think first time entrepreneurs make this mistake that like their idea is super brilliant. They don't have thought of it. And if any people, other people hear it, they're going to steal it. And in my case, it's rarely happens. I and mean, for the most part, people think my ideas are stupid, so they don't try to steal them, which is a big plus to doing something new. But but even if if someone wanted to, I mean, I think there's ideas are cheap. You know, execution is hard, and so uh, there's lots of people who hatch up ideas all the time that don't go anywhere with them. And so that definitely the the more things you solve, like you you begin to accumulate, you know, intellectual property that you probably don't want to share with everybody, but I don't think the idea is you're probably not the first person to have thought of it <laughs> and the people who could have done it, you know, either did or decided they didn't want to. And so you're running a, a relatively low risk in that respect. And so I, I think it's definitely worthwhile to, to do that. Take, take all the input you can, especially when it's free. 
Yeah, definitely. Um, so maybe I'll pass it on to Rob. He has a, a couple of questions. Yeah, thanks, Nathan. Um, Matt, always a pleasure to have you on. Uh, fun anecdotes and, and a lot of insight. Uh, it was uh, great to listen in. Also, you were on with your brother back in February. You had a sort of an impromptu conversation where you talked about a lot of this stuff here. So um, I was thinking to follow up a little bit on just a couple of points. One is, you know, you're, you're talking about how just now you were saying you were approaching, um, like you have all these ideas and you, you talk about them with everybody. And generally <laughs> they'd say that, that you're crazy, won't work, et cetera. Then you'd go to other experts who would try to resolve these things. So that's a very good strategy. But um, say, say you're, you're someone uh, like one, one of the audience here. Or, or like us, you know, thinking about uh, doing something similar to what you've done. How would you, how would you start? Like, could you just spend a couple of minutes to walk us through like the actual steps of, you know, approaching a researcher, an expert, how much time it took you, how many rejections you got, um, you know, how, how long to write your emails, how much homework to do, that, that kind of stuff. Because, I mean, it's not obvious at all how you would go about doing what you do. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, well, I mean, every journey is going to be different, and certainly the uh, I, the journey you take, for example, if you're if you have a piece of technology coming out of a, a super prominent lab, is going to be different than if you have no technology or technology coming out of a kind of obscure lab, because people will give you different, you know, they'll give you the benefit of the doubt maybe on one thing, uh, or they'll they'll be more willing to take a call and that kind of thing, but. Uh, I mean, what was interesting, I guess, um, is that when I first started this, the general attitude is that I, I had no business being in there. I, I wasn't. I didn't get like a PhD in molecular and cell biology or genetics or anything like that. And, I, and I'm here trying to wage war on something that people have been trying to do for a long time and failing at. The, but at some point in that journey, I crossed this like invisible line where suddenly I, I wasn't an outsider anymore. People knew who I was and they'd seen some of the stuff we built and they're like, Oh, you know, it's Matt, he, he has this cool lab and does all this fun stuff. And uh, I mean, I had my own lab. My, I became like a, a rogue PI of sorts. Um, could, I, I wasn't really beholden to any university or, or the government for funding. And so I, I could do all sorts of fun things that they couldn't. And, uh, and so I, I say that because how the world looks at you is going to impact a lot what you need to do to get started so if you're already like you know you've done a couple of postdocs and this you've written some papers you got a, a couple high impact journals under your belt like you're going to take a different path than someone like me who didn't have those things but uh i'd say that uh, assuming uh you know take, take that difference away for a moment what what i normally do if i'm contemplating a new project is you know i i have a, a ton of these ideas in fact I, i've been looking to hire somebody with the express purpose of helping me run down a bunch of these ideas without distracting my core scientific team. And, uh, and so I frequently have something that sounds really cool. And then the real thought is to say, okay, well, who's, who's done work on this in the past? Um, you know, choose target X. And maybe at, at some point in the call, it might make sense to have someone who has an actual example we can kind of walk through because it can be a little easier that way. But, uh, you know, I guess the first is map out what's been done like who are the experts in this kind of field that that who are the ones who you might want to talk to or the ones you might want to avoid for that matter i mean some of them are you know, can be kind of assholes um so it's it's good to understand like who's in the field and uh and then you say okay well if, if i get this technology and assume i can make it work 
uh, how would I apply it? Is there like a, a viable path to turn this into a, a drug that can make a lot of money or be, be sold to a pharma that can, that can actually address a meaningful need? So you have to kind of look at these through two different lenses. You know, one is like a scientific plan to validate your idea and, and move it through from, you know, being in a dish to being in an animal to having conversations with regulators to, you know, human trials. The other is answering the question of, even if I assume all that stuff goes well, what am I going to do with this thing? Uh, how, how is it going to make money? How is it going to help people? Uh, can it be made at a scale that is, is viable or like, or could it, is it likely to be viable in at least, a, you know, a decade or so? And so I think these are the, the lenses you have to look at it from and which one you spend the most hours, say, doing homework on is really going to depend on, on where you uh, have the most unknowns. Like if you know everything about this, you know, molecule because you've been working on it for years, for example, you're not going to have to do much of the background work on that. You probably already have a good idea of how you're going to need to run it through the paces to, to validate it in a, a more advanced model. Then you're going to need to spend a bunch of time on figuring out if, if I can make this, like, you know, for kidney disease, right? I had to look a lot about, uh, you know, the kidney disease market, like how many people are there who have this? How many are, you know, identified and when are they identified and how many, like in our case, we decided to not go after diabetic kidney disease initially. And that, that's actually the bulk of kidney disease patients. But uh, it, and I think it would probably work in those patients too, really. But uh, it added another layer of complexity to it that I didn't want to tackle in the early trials. I wanted to have less risk in my early clinical trials. And so, we, you know, talked to all the experts in that case, you know, American Society of Nephrology, all these guys, all the key opinion leaders in there and said, this is what we're trying to address. Like, you know, what, where's the biggest pain point? Like, where should we get into this? What, and then, you know, I posed this question a bunch as what, what kind of data would I have to show you before you are the one advocating for me that this should be put in your patients? Um, and it's like a blunt question. I think you should ask a lot of clinicians and uh, especially the kind of clinicians who do experimental medicine. But say like, I've got, you know, compound X sitting here. Like you know, doctors are generally speaking, fairly risk averse. Uh, they, you know, this whole Hippocratic oath thing, right? They don't want to kill their patients. And uh, where scientists are, you know, in the habit of putting strange compounds into furry creatures all the time. And so if you, you know, frame it like this, this is the data I've got today. Like, what would you need to see before you would be advocating for me? And something that happened really interesting in, in my first startup in particular was that a lot of the people who were like the harshest critics early on, who were just like, thought it was dumb, like would, they, they would invest a surprising amount of time telling me why it was so dumb. But uh, some of these guys actually became some of the most vocal advocates for it of anyone because they, they kind of watched this progression as like, systematically the objections like fell down basically or or we found a way around them and uh and then they're like this is actually pretty pretty good <laughs> they become your advocates and I, I think that's that's a perspective that you're going to want to take but you have to i guess it, it the first step is looking at yourself and your goals and figuring out where the holes are um, i guess that's if you're to abstract it to one thing because the the details about how much time to spend or who to talk to or what to do are all going to be based on that Thanks. Yeah. I mean, uh, a detailed case study obviously would be very helpful, but let's just try to make this as practical as possible. Let's say for, for a potential grad student or a postdoc or someone, you know, when you got start, started, were you, you said you came from a CS and physics background. Ooh. Were you self-funded? Did you, were you writing on savings? Did you, like, from yeah, a uh... standpoint, how did you actually, did it take you like two years before someone finally said, okay, this is interesting. You've talked to all these experts. Now we can fund you. Like, how long yeah, yeah. So, did you need to take? 
Yeah. From, so from my perspective, like I said, the, the idea was I wanted to build an app store for the human body. And actually, uh, may I, yeah, I'll walk you through like he's as an example. So uh, the thing that got me interested in biology initially uh, was uh, vaccines. And that's if you got a vaccine, suddenly a disease that used to be able to kill you wouldn't even give you the sniffles. Like you could take a lethal disease and, and with this vaccine, if you got challenged with the disease, nothing happens. And I thought that was pretty amazing. Like, I mean, nothing's fundamentally changed about the pathogen or the host. Like, it, but suddenly lethal goes to nothing. And uh, and everyone would, you know, I guess, pay lip service to this idea of immune memory, which seems to have been forgotten, I guess, in the days of COVID. But uh, that your immune system has a memory, and uh, if it, <laughs> if it sees something once, it can fight it off. But uh, I got asked, you know, asking him as a computer scientist, is well, where is the uh, Where's the file? Where's the hard drive? In what language is this written? Because I'm pretty sure immune memory, you know, doesn't live in your brain. Um, and, you know, your your genome in general seems to be the same. So, like, where's uh, where is this? And it turns out, you know, it actually is encoded in DNA, like in the variable and hypervariable regions of B cell receptors and T cell receptors in a subset of cells. But uh, what my uh, interest was in this initially was that what if we could take the... Uh, leverage the computational power of the planet against a virus. So if, if you think about how your immune system works in that respect, it's, it's kind of a brute force attack. You randomize your immune cell repertoire, you make sure it doesn't attack you, and then you turn it loose, and then you hope it sticks to something. And when it does, it begins to mutate these things even faster in an effort to like build a better uh, bind onto it, to, to have higher affinity binding. And, and so with the... Uh, certain diseases like HIV that we haven't been able to vaccinate against certain people still manage to actually uh, become immune to it effectively or to, to produce antibodies that kept them safe or they, they would get sick maybe very slowly or sometimes not at all, but super rare. Like you know, we've lost what 40, 50 million people to HIV. Like each of them made countless trillions of these antibodies and only a handful got the upper hand. There's a brute force attack with flesh and blood. And so, so what if we, could port these algorithms into cryptographic hardware, like these really powerful password crackers that people like to build. And uh, so I, that's actually how I got started on this, is trying to port uh, Rosetta Doc uh, to cryptographic hardware, to FPGAs in that case. And as I went down the road, one of the things that someone pointed out was that cells don't have USB ports. Like, you can't just upload it. Like, we already know what antibodies uh, protect people from HIV but there's no way to upload it to the person. And uh, and this is just, I suppose, speaking to my general ignorance of the field, like I had assumed that that seems so obvious that someone would have done it before. Uh, it's like, how can you not have a way of programming cells? And so then basically said, okay, the focus is gonna be how to program the cells. Like for, forget docking proteins and all that stuff. Like someone already has a sequence we can use. Uh, we need a way to upload it. And then it became a search for what a, what tools exist uh, to modify cells. And so that was like occupied a, a probably a good year of research trying to like analyze the technologies for like getting information into cells. And, uh, and eventually I kind of uh, settled on these two technologies uh, that I thought I needed. One uh, was a measles pseudotype lentivirus I'd found in France. And the other was this culture system for growing plasma cells from Caltech at David Baltimore's lab. And so, Basically, I, I got licensed to, to that or an option to it and uh, and then put together this prototype virus and, and away we went. And uh, so it, early on, though, I was basically just maxing out credit cards and stuff. So I had some money from my previous startups, but uh, I was just, you know, 
trying to like you know buy as few things as I could, obviously. But uh, um, but yeah, just all all my own money. And it wasn't until we basically had gotten these first little you know glowing cells in a dish, uh, GFP positive, you know, primary B lymphocytes <laughs> that that we got initial funding. And in my case, the we had a couple early angels came in and uh, who were medical doctors. And then uh, Breakout Labs was our first primary funder. So this is uh, Peter Thiel's outfit. And we were actually the, the first in the first cohort of Breakout Labs. And they had this really interesting kind of mission was basically to, to fund things that were too, uh, too outside the box for the NIH and too early for venture capital. And, and so when we saw like they'd actually had a, a press release when they got started. And uh, one of my guys saw this and uh, we looked at it like, if, if we're not going to get funded by that, we're not getting funded by anything. This seems like <laughs> it was written for us. And uh, so we applied and that gave us uh, first funding. And then we got an NIH grant after that. And uh, basically it allowed us to, I think our first round was going to be a little over a million dollars. And, uh, and we used that to generate our first data in mice. And then we raised more money and went from there. Okay, so if I understand, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, it sounds like it, you had some prior, uh, you know, like earlier startups that were outside of biotech. And then in, in the beginning, you were sort of feeling your way around, took like a year or two at least, uh, where, where you were sort of self-funded. And, um, and then with enough persistence, it sounds like you, you eventually got through this uh, breakout labs funding and, and then the rest is history. Is that yeah. about right? And, yeah, that's about right. And I mean, for, for me, I, I, I guess distinct <clears throat> disadvantage in that it took a, a while just to be able to read medical journals fluently, right? Like uh, when I first picked up, you know, like a you know, fixed article of nature or something, I, I had to read these things with Google open in the next window to look up all the words. And uh, so I, I didn't have like the background and the nomenclature and all this stuff. And uh, so it, there was a little lag time just to even do that well. And then I, I got proficient at mining medical literature and had to make friends with all sorts of people who are at academic labs to send me lots of papers. And uh, it's before the world of Sci-Hub and stuff. And um, that I, I'd say actually back then, my general position was that, you know, like the paywalls on medical journals were the single largest obstacle to the advancement of science in the world. You know, I mean, I, I think it's still a complete abomination incidentally that, you know, taxpayers pay for all this research. Like NIH is the largest funder of biotech research by a considerable margin. And we can't even read the results of the data we paid for as the average taxpayer. It's complete bullshit. But uh, um, but yeah, back then it was, uh, yeah, I think that was even before Gigapedia, which like predated Sciub. But uh, yeah, so it, it was uh, actually, I had considerable delays just getting papers. Cause I, I'd read a bunch of papers, find a bunch of more papers I wanted. Then for like, email all my long suffering friends to like collect more papers and then go do it again. Or, or I, I would uh, sometimes drive to my old university and I would uh, sit outside the library because it, it'd be closed at that point, usually in the middle of the night. And I would uh, just slurp down all the papers from the, uh, the <laughs> Wi-Fi <laughs> and then uh, go back and read them all. So I, I'd make these big lists of all these things to get. But yeah, so there's, I think there is definitely a, a lead time in this. Unless of course, like say you're, if you're already sitting there, you're quite familiar with what you have and what you want to do with it, a lot of that stuff would go away. But uh, e even in my position now, like when I get, you know, new things come across my desk, usually I still have to dig into understanding the background of it if it's not something that I already was quite familiar with.
All right, great. So we're running short on time for the first hour here, so yeah. I guess uh, pass it back to Nathan, or we can open it up to uh, the audience here if there's anyone that has any questions. Yeah, so right right before we get into audience questions, um, so anybody in the audience, you can start raising your hands. Uh, but Matt, um, is there anything that we can do for you? Are you guys uh, hiring or you're uh, raising money or something like that? Uh, I'll just let you put out a call <laughs> for that. Oh, well, I'd say in in general, we're always looking for yeah, money, brains, and molecules. It's my my mission. Um, and uh, so right now, like so we're we're closing one round. We're going to open another. Um, but uh, we're always looking for for new people who want to support what we're up to. The, I expect we'll probably be hiring uh, more scientists relatively soon in our San Diego lab because we just got a much larger space and we're it could be able to fit more in. But uh, we don't have like any specific listings out. But I, I'm generally the mind anyone who's interested in the space or has kind of cool approaches to it. Like I, I'm always looking for things to do. Like we we built this hammer, you know, the ability to you know upload kind of arbitrary nucleic acids, and we have broad rights in the field of aging and so uh, and in oncology. And so if, if there's things that can be applied with that, that can benefit from, you know, systemic delivery of nucleic acids in particular, I think that's, uh, we're always interested in talking about that. Okay, great. Yeah. And if you have any job listings, just email me and I can post them on my website as well. Okay, awesome. cool. Let's, let's, uh, let's get to some questions because we went way over. Uh, I mean, Matt, you had awesome answers and definitely a gold mine for advice for, uh, people who are looking to get into this, but, um, Let's start with the first question, uh, Attila. Um, maybe you can just uh, introduce yourself and, uh, and then you can ask your sure. question. Sure, thanks a lot, Nathan. And thanks a lot, Matt, for uh, speaking. My name is Attila. I work at uh, Blue Rock Therapeutics in Toronto. I'm a research associate. Um, yeah, so basically I just have kind of like uh, maybe a broad question, you know, given your uh, experience um, and, and expertise, you know, where, where do you see the longevity industry go, you know, long-term, like 20 to 30 years? And do you think that we can reach like the longevity escape velocity uh, in that time? Uh, Thank you. Um, I think uh, in general, like the, the future is in synthetic biology. Like we're having to do more and more complicated things and control things that are, need much more precision. So uh, I think, especially as you begin to look at things like cellular reprogramming or rejuvenation of, of tissue in situ, I think that, that becomes much more critical. The uh, the other that I think moves into like, I mean, I guess you have two lenses of the longevity thing. One is get rid of the damage that causes problems. And the other is like actually drive rejuvenation. And, you know, Senelix being a, an obvious first start on one, but you have you know, all sorts of things like, you know, cross-link breakers, you know, trying to correct metabolic dysfunction and things like this before you kind of get to actually driving rejuvenation. And so but I think synthetic biology is going to become an increasingly important role in this. And I think that there's a sporting chance. I mean, we've, we've roughly doubled our lifespan uh, in the last hundred years or so, plus or minus. Um, and I, I don't think the gains will be as easy going forward. But, uh, but I think, you know, if you look at just the analytics on average, extend lifespan in animals by around 20%. I think that that's a ballpark that we can probably get, you know, maybe, maybe we get half of that, but uh, in, in a human, but I, I think we, we can definitely make progress. And with every piece, you know, my attitude is they'll buy me 10 more years to think of the next problem. Great. Um, okay. So let's go to our next uh, uh, audience. Um, 
Oh yeah, and just FYI, anybody coming up to the stage to ask a question, it means you consent to us using your audio in the uh, the recording. Okay, so everything is being recorded. Uh, King Yin Yan. Uh, hi, uh, I'm an uh, independent AI researcher, and uh, I have been uh, uh, working on uh, a theory of AGI for for, for some uh, many years, and I want to uh, uh, join a project to apply my uh, AI. And also I have some uh, background in biotech. So uh, I would like to know uh, what's a promising area to uh, apply AI in longevity research. Well, I think, uh, I mean, this is a bit out of, of my speech. I'd say actually, uh, you know, the the BioAge crew um, and, and Silico crew are probably the, the people to ask about this. Um, they're, they know better than I do, but I mean, for, you know, on, on one hand, I think they're mining things like both biomarkers of age and, and changes of things that you can detect from biosamples. And uh, on the other, you know, basically trying to anticipate things that would likely be therapeutic. And these, uh, I think both have applications. One, one thing in my mind that uh, I think has a lot of, promise is actually more basic and that's just better ways of mining medical research and i mean there's so many papers written that at this point it becomes you know, impossible to keep up with them at all and the ability to mine larger and larger data sets for like natural language processing i think has a lot of benefits but uh but yeah i would probably uh hit up uh uh alex or uh um one of these guys they, <laughs> they're the ones who uh would know this the best uh, thank you. And, and uh, also, I would like to mention uh, something like uh, uh, AlphaFold, uh, which is uh, uh, like a, a, a small problem that has been solved with AI uh, entirely. So, uh, so uh, and, and maybe something more uh, 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 like uh, nanomedicine, uh, I mean, like designing the molecules which is, uh, yeah. seems to be suitable for AI. Yeah, I think that's probably something uh, more that uh, Alex is doing than Kristen, but uh, I, I'm actually not certain. I, I, due to all the lockdown, I have not been talking to them recently. But the, those are the the people who come to mind the first in, in the field that I think are worth talking to. Uh, okay, yes, thank you. Yeah. yeah. Okay, great. Yeah, so you can definitely check out uh, Alex uh, Zavarankov's uh, company in silico medicine. Um, okay, so next question, uh, Joshua. Oh, hi there, um, Joshua Yankin. I'm an attorney in San Diego, and, and I worked with Matt back in the Discovery Institute days a while ago. Um, how are you doing, Matt? <laughs> doing great. How are you? Doing well, bud. Hey, um, so I didn't catch the entirety of the conversation, um, so apologize if this is, uh, you know, if you've, already, if you've already covered this, but did I hear you say recently that you guys plan to come to San Diego? Uh, yeah, well, we actually have a lab in San Diego, or technically Oncosenex, our oncology uh, spin out. So I'm actually in Torrey Pines right now. But, uh, oh, wow, okay. So yeah. we're, uh, yeah, we, we are at J-Labs initially, and we still have a small J-Labs footprint, and then we got our own lab across the street, basically, and uh, now we're moving into a much bigger lab across the street from that. Oh, wow, that's, a, that's incredibly exciting, man. Um, how goes the patent profile? Are you guys constantly filing? Um, what are some of the challenges there? Yeah, it's, <laughs> I think the, 
patents have like a, a special kind of frustration where uh, you uh, you patent something and they're like, oh, that's you know impossible. Then it switches to being obvious. Um, <laughs> and there's <laughs> It, it is a uh, yes. It drives me insane. But uh, we've managed to get uh, some early patents issued already. The uh, the delivery technology was uh, has patents that go back from before I got my paws on it, and then a whole bunch of new ones on the uh, updated variants of it. Um, like the delivery technology improved by like eighty fold in the time we've been dealing with it. So uh, um, so it's a yeah, pretty much a continual barrage. And a lot uh, these days on some of applications and new payloads and that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, it's a, I've spent an embarrassing amount on uh, IP addresses, <laughs> I'll tell you that much, but <laughs> I, I should have a boat with my name on it somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that's, that's actually my last, my last question is, is what's your exit strategy? Um, on the oncology side, it seems pretty well set up to, to license or sell to a big pharma company. It's, you know, really straight down the center of the fairway for that. And so a lot of, even the IP strategy has been built with that in mind. On the aging side of it, you know, we're much more interested in building, you know, a Pfizer for aging than we are selling it. And so we want to, I mean, so we have applications that go well beyond analytics, like a, a very broad mandate to all sorts of things, some of which are right now, it seem pretty far off, but I, I think, you know, in time will become much more accepted. And so we're goal is to like build things like we might, for example, license out uh, the kidney disease application. But we're going to keep pushing the, the platform forward, ideally uh, in-house on, on that side. Very interesting. Do, do you have any specific buyers in mind? Uh, uh, yes, although I, I can't talk about them. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Maybe another time. Yeah. yeah. Okay, great. Uh, we're, we're at five o'clock now. Um, Matt, do you have time maybe just for... Uh, a couple more questions. Uh, I yeah, I can sit around for a bit longer. Oh, okay, great. Thank you. Okay, so uh, John, uh, what's your question? Great. Thank you. Hi, all. Um, this has been really helpful, so uh, thanks a lot, Matt, for doing this. But my name is John Young. I'm an MD-PhD um, looking to transition into the longevity space and really interested in gene therapy, so this, is, this has been great. But my question is, uh, what innovations do you think would be the most helpful uh, for further improving gene therapy for aging? You mentioned kind of the delivery vehicle and you spent a lot about uh, a lot talking about that earlier in the, the discussion. And is that what you think where more innovation is needed or our understanding of aging or maybe, you know, even finding better targets or multiple targets? Yeah, well, delivery seemed like it was like the, the harshest, the most acute pain point, really. And uh, it's why I put so much effort in. The last decade of my life has been obsessing around how to get DNA into cells. And, uh, and I'm quite optimistic about our particular delivery technology. And I think it's going to open up an awful lot of possibilities that, that weren't really there before. Because if, if you can't master delivery, uh, you know, having the the perfect editing tool isn't very useful. Like if, if, you, if you're only limited to what you do ex vivo or like hitting the liver repeatedly, uh, you definitely have, I think, problems with that. But uh, so, and I think that even from our delivery point of view, you know, it's definitely a moving target. We're working on, you know, always evolving this thing to, you know, be able to hit, hit more cells more reliably. Um, and on the, the payload front, I think some of these tools like, you know, durable episomal vectors, like I'm a big fan of the, the nanoplasmid, some of these things I think open up the, the possibility to, to do things that you couldn't really do before without the, 
the risk of, you know, having to do insertion. And so some of, some of these basic building blocks are, are coming a long way. I, I do think that in terms of aging, still the, the biomarkers aspect of it, like how do you measure success is still a big problem. I mean, that's why we're, we're pretty much, you know, stuck with going after targets that the FDA likes at the moment. And I, I do think they'll crack at some point in terms of treating aging itself as a disease or at least a, a target you can go after. But, uh, but for now it's, you know, we go after kidney disease or idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis or cancer. And because, you know, you can see the result basically. And uh, so being able to understand the, the mechanisms of aging and how to, how to see its progression and ideally its reversion are, are really important tools. And that we're, we're beginning to get at, I, I'm, I mean, the biological clocks, I think, are kind of the epigenetic clocks are these uh, interesting, somewhat emergent class of, of biomarkers for it. But uh, I think the the way they're trained, you know, of course, biases them one way or another. And, and none of these things have a, a proper reference standard in the sense of like, we've never shown that we can take an old person and make them younger. So how, how do you know if it's working? <laughs> um, you, you can, they, they do seem pretty good at telling you if you're in bad shape or relatively in good shape uh, based on your age, but not so much measuring the outcome of uh, an intervention. So, I mean, a senolytic is a good example. There are definitely some of those clocks that uh, respond to senescent cells a lot, but uh, others ignore them in their entirety, basically. And part of it would have been on the cell you sampled anyway. But uh, so being able to get a better handle and probably given your expertise on both the, like, the, the medical and the science side of looking like how, how do you address this from a patient's point of view? Like on for, you know, so much of, of history, aging medicine has been kind of the, the purview of, of snake oil and cosmetics and that you, you were kind of prohibited by definition from making a cosmetic that worked because it would become a drug. And uh, if it's a drug, it would have to be regulated <laughs> and then have to have a disease. And so, uh, in, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting to look at how companies have skirted that over the years. You know, think of like Botox, probably the classic example of this, um, you know, for infant restless leg and moved into wrinkles. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I think being able to, to find good ways to actually uh, determine what's progression and what's not probably for the field has the most value. In, in terms of uh, um, actual new therapies, like, so I'm actually really interested in the things like the cross-link breakers. I think they're they're largely a, an orphaned part of the space. There, there are a couple of people working on them now, but uh, this idea of how do you deal with extracellular junk, like all, all the stuff we're dealing with kills cells that are defective. They don't deal with, you know, remodeling the extracellular matrix or, or tissues in general. And so we, one thing that we're looking at, you know, ourselves in the future is dealing with that and, and even things like collagen deposition and uh, is admittedly a little more cosmetic, but, uh, but still, you know, these things of how, how do you actually age? What's the, what's the difference? Yeah, great. Thank you. Okay, great. Uh, next question, Eduardo. Oh, okay. Maybe we'll go to Anar first. Anar. Oh, hey guys. Uh, can you guys hear me? Yeah. Oh, and hey, Matt. Uh, Really interesting. Uh, by the way, I'm a CEO of Ageless RX, and it's really interesting to hear uh, all the hustle that went into the, you know, building your company. I, I can definitely relate to that and appreciate it. That's, um, that's amazing. Um, question in regards to the, the mice, right? So it's interesting. So this is the senescence treatment where the mice already aged, and even a the aged mice 
end up living longer, right? Like you don't have to start young because you don't have to yeah. lessen this burden when you're young. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the interesting things about our version of the study was that we started in mice that were quite old. They're two years of age. And so it is like equivalent to like a 70 year old person at this point there. Uh, whereas the, the male one, I think started at it's 18 months, I think was their old cohort of memory serves. It is younger though. And there, there is an interesting thing. There's certain kind of pathologies that you can prevent, but you can't undo. I mean, an interesting one from, theirs when they were treating young age is they could prevent a cataract, but you couldn't get rid of a cataract later. So certain tissues can regenerate better than others. And I think, you know, the, the general thesis behind senolytics is that the senescent cells are actually impairing your ability to regenerate and taking them away just allows your body to regenerate better in general. I mean, the something that you know, anyone could observe that like kids uh, tend to bounce back faster than adults. You know, a kid breaks a bone, hurts themselves, they, they heal faster. They, they can tolerate much more damage and rebound from it than older people do. And uh, so the thought is that this is taking a breakaway of sorts, um, not necessarily improving regenerative capability beyond what it was. Um, and although I, I would say that if you are going to choose an optimal time to start taking senolytics, it would be more on the age of like 30 from a human uh, than it would be at 50 or 60. And because, you know, that's kind of the rough time when you start, you know, stop growing and start dying. You know, like it's kind of interesting, right? A human can go for decades without getting a wrinkle. And uh, and this has always kind of captured my imagination that you have this ability to tolerate a fair amount of abuse. I think you do accumulate senescent cells early on in life, but they pick up pace exponentially as you age. And if you look at, you know, your your genome uh, at 80, it's basically the same as it was at eight. And of course there's, you know, somatic mosaicisms and you accumulate some mutations, but uh, on average you, you have still plenty of cells that are, have more or less your core genome, but you're in a lot worse shape at 80 than you are at eight. And I mean, the reason you got that wrinkle wasn't because you forgot how to make the collagen. It's that uh, something was actively blocking the process. And so that's, I think why, why are targeting, why I think actually targeting younger on it might be beneficial even if you're not seeing symptoms. That's really interesting. So it might be interesting to see if you start targeting younger mice, if the survival improves even beyond the ones where you start older mice. Oh, yeah. I mean, our our reason for going old uh, was a, a little bit pragmatic, and it was that mostly uh, rich people tend to be old. And uh, it wasn't like the FDA is going to let you put an aging treatment into a toddler anyway. So you can't go after a kid that was just weaned and give him this. And so we, we selected this out of, <laughs> out of kind of pragmatic reasons that weren't a uh, weren't strictly academic. That's interesting. Got it. And then just one other question is, how often would you need to administer, like in mice, it's just one time IV or injection? And then, and also, even eventually when these mice die, do they, do they die from the same reasons as the control group or are the reasons different? Um, so we were injecting them once a month. And uh, in humans, I would think that if you started the treatment when you're old, you might want to take a few of them and relatively short succession to try to knock down this larger burden you have. But then you're probably only going to need to take it every few years, really, if I were to guess. Like, assuming you have a good senolytic um, that, that can actually take out the majority of the cells. The, uh, on the, uh, what's the second part of that? Um, um, did they die for different reasons? Oh, it was right? yeah. yeah. So for the most part, yes. Um, they would, uh, you'd see some of them would get really aggressive cancers. And uh, and some of them would uh, would just 
heal over with no real determinant cause. But you'd see things that looked like, you know, liver disease and, and cancer in some of them, which is something you'd see in the controls and the, the old mice. But there, it didn't seem to skew it really hard one way or the other. So they are, uh, in the end, it, it didn't make them immortal. But uh, they, they didn't always have like really obvious causes of death. I mean, in our study, like, I think three of them were sacked for atopic dermatitis, basically, like, which is ridiculous. Um, you don't usually sack your grandma if she gets a rash. But uh, the, we didn't have treatment for it on protocol. So if the they got a rash and it got bad, it didn't resolve, they sacked one. But, okay. um, so <laughs> not, not super helpful. We, but <laughs> we had a, a, a much larger study in that we started looking at next. Um, and that was basically trying to look more at... Uh, things like cognitive metrics and uh, like health and frailty. So the, you know, basically what kills a lab mouse in the end didn't seem to change a lot between them. It just happened later um, and more abruptly. But uh, I don't know how much it's worth trying to go after those things in the sense that they are a lab mouse at that point. That's awesome. Got it. Thank you. Thanks so much. Okay. Thanks for your question, Anar. Uh, I think um, it's uh, we're ten minutes past now. So, oh wait, oh, we have one question. Eduardo, he's he's back. Okay, uh, last question. Uh, yes, my my question is, uh, all I uh, I don't know if you know a recent study of the Back Institute, where they have shown a big relation with the between the senescence and the Alzheimer, and I don't know if all of this technology may be applied to the Alzheimer, as there is a strong relation according to these studies. Yeah, so I'm not sure about Alzheimer's proper, but we were showing improvement in cognitive function in uh, in the animals that we were treating, and so I, and we're digging into this more on like a, an academic basis, trying to understand a, a mechanism behind it. I mean, Alzheimer's is you know a more of course specific form of dementia, um, and we're, we weren't looking for the Alzheimer's models in mice are different, so these are just normal mice, but. Uh, but they did seem to have improvements uh, when you treated them with this. And so I, I think there's likely something there, although uh, I don't understand it academically. Okay. Um, maybe we'll just wrap it up with one last question. Thank you so much for your time. But uh, uh, comment, uh, if you can just make one quick question and then... Yes, thank you very much, uh, Matt. That was uh, very um, informative. I, um, I just wondered, you mentioned uh, your um, experiences with uh, interacting with other scientists um, over time, um, and uh, you alluded in some ways to uh, experiences with uh, regulators or uh, interactions with regulators, but I was wondering if you had any observations on um, the kind of evolution of, of the regulatory uh, approach to what you're doing or what you might be doing um, over the years that you've been involved in it? Yeah, so I think the probably the, the biggest one from a practical point of view for, view for me is uh, the acceptance of gene therapy and genetic medicines in general. I mean, this has, has changed a lot, but I mean, I'd say actually probably the, the biggest change that no one has really, I think, wrapped their heads around yet was what just happened with the COVID vaccine. I mean, if you think of like the AstraZeneca, J&J, these kinds of vaccines, like they're a straight up gene therapy. I mean, that's a, it's a live virus delivering DNA. And uh, the thought that you would basically be giving gene therapies to healthy people uh, a few years ago, I think would have 
been, you know, absolutely out of the question. Like no one would have tolerated this. And, and I mean, gene therapy has been reserved mostly for terminal patients and, uh, you know, rare genetic diseases. And it's been, you know, moving slowly into things like, you know, hemophilia and stuff that aren't necessarily going to kill you right away, but uh, certainly not being done to healthy people. And I think that this, uh, this is actually a pretty significant shift. And my hope is, of course, that it will, you know, go well and it will, make, uh, you know, open up the regime a little bit more to genetic medicines. But uh, and so the, that that kind of progression, I mean, when we had started uh, Imisoft, the first company, there was no approved cell therapies at all. Um, and uh, there's, it wasn't, there's no CAR T's, no, this is before even ProVenge, Dendron. And, uh, and so in, in that time now, you look, there's, I think something like 900 gene therapies working their way through clinical trials right now. It, it's huge. And so that, that's a big deal. On, on the aging front specifically, I think like the, the TAME trial and stuff are an interesting development from a regulatory point of view in that it's, you know, one of these, it's an early instance of uh, the regulators accepting kind of a constellation of endpoints that uh, I think this kind of uh, endpoint would be necessary for aging if you wanted to get an approved drug. And so I think it's, it's making progress towards that. But yeah, I, I think that... Uh, you know, it will come down, I suppose, to demand. I mean, the the FDA is, you know, fundamentally pretty risk averse, but it's balancing, you know, not wanting to, you know, have patients upset because they can't get a drug and not wanting to have patients upset because they got killed by a drug. And uh, and those two kind of uh, factors, I think, drive a great deal of what they uh, they do. But the the much greater experience we're having with these advanced kinds of treatments, I think, is is going to make life a lot easier in terms of having a predictable path that, uh, that everyone can follow. Thank you. That's helpful. That's very helpful. Thank you. Great. Okay. So <laughs> thank you again, Matt, for, for coming on the show and answering all these questions. Uh, I love the talk that we just had is, is really informative and lots of practical advice for uh, potential founders who want to get into this space. Um, just uh, a reminder, uh, anybody out there who's uh, maybe a research scientist and they're interested in getting into this field, um, Matt mentioned that uh, they will be hiring at some point. And uh, of course, uh, more money is always needed. Uh, so if anybody uh, is an investor or you know someone who's an investor who might be interested in, in uh, Oncosenex or um, Oishin Biotechnologies, um, definitely try and reach out to Matt. Um, so without any further ado, I think that's basically it. Uh, we'll close up here and then and then maybe we'll open up a different room just for some casual after chat, uh, just for maybe half an hour. But uh, yeah, so once again, uh, thank you. Thank you, Matt. And um, I think that's, that's what we've got. Yeah, thank you, Nathan Robert. It's a, it a great time. Thanks for having me. Yeah, definitely. Thanks.